Welcome to Unboard, unplugged, unscripted board leadership. A conversation between boardroom leaders that covers leadership, priorities, and influence. Now, here's Brian Hayward. Welcome to Onboard. I'm pleased to actually be today with, with I don't know if he's in Warsaw, because that's where we talk first, or uh, in Quebec, but uh, with Ken Tyler. So, um, thank you. Start these things off. I, I just kind of a law ball. Um, and then maybe that's the appropriate thing because you've been in sports and you can hit this one out of the park. But uh, let's say we're going to uh, this building and I walk in the elevator, I hit the eighth floor, and then you go, Oh, I'm going to the eighth floor too. So, uh, and then it goes like, How did you, what, where, what are you doing? How did you get to the eighth floor? What's, what's brought you here today? It's funny you should start with that kind of a question, because in our previous conversations, we were amazed with the number of parallels that we've had in our (laughs) lives that have been amazingly different lives in terms of where they've taken us and what we've done. And then we sort of end up crossing over paths again uh, at, at a level where you've been doing a lot of work in your career at the board level, directly inside boards or with boards. And I've been working with boards, but more as a coach, consultant, facilitator, senior advisor. And uh, that's what brought us back together. But in our background, we've had uh, similar locations, similar universities, similar eyeglasses. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is audio, right? <laughs> yeah, so they can't see it. But And we're not going to do a, a placement ad for the uh, kind of glasses we're wearing. But uh, it was quite amazing when we even came across that. So. Uh, what have I been doing? I've been crossing across the world back and forth and going to the eighth floor was all about uh, working within YPO uh, labyrinth and looking at developing a group for non-executive directors, NEDS. And I had established a subgroup for in, in a, uh, in a network and you had established a subgroup in a network or subnet and uh, a, a, a mutual friend, had shared that with us. And I thought, well, I'm going to reach out and see if we can't do something together because clearly we have a similar objectives. That's what got this. That was the initial contact. So I recall. Yeah. So you, you're born in Western Canada, right? And, and born in a storm, Brian. <laughs> but hockey's been your life. I mean, that's, that's the same for a lot of people from, from that part of the world. But um, how did you end up being living in Warsaw and being a coach based in as much in Warsaw, Poland as being in, in, in Canada. Well, that, that's a very convoluted uh, story. Uh, it firstly, well, convolute I was, me. <laughs> <It's funny. laughs> uh, I don't know if we want to quite go there yet on our first drink, but okay. <laughs> uh, so I was not born in Western Canada, but my, uh, my oldest sister and my both parents were there. They were first born generation Canadians and uh, only my dad from his family and only my mom from her family side moved east after the war and after the veteran-based degree that my dad got out of University of Saskatchewan, okay, being the only post-high school graduate uh, from his uh, his family and the same with my mom. So uh, he was educated, and that's what took him to Ottawa first, and then he ended up in Toronto, and that's where I was born. And uh, I had a passion introduced by my mom and dad, but they were not athletes. My mom more so than my dad, but my dad was absolutely not an athlete. And uh, 
but by about two and a half years old, I was already skating. And, and uh, just as we see, I'm looking out my window right now, and it's a perfect time to skate down to the park and play some ice hockey. I can recall mornings back then when winters were stronger, we would skate down the street and play hockey in the rink that was made in the park. And then uh, when it was, uh, we take our lunch, which was frozen by the time we ate it, <laughs> and then came skated back, skated back along the street, back to our house as the sun went down. And uh, so that was my hockey way back when, and it's always been a part of my life. And uh, actually, one of my daughters, my oldest daughter, uh, found a, a five-year journal that I had been writing as a young kid. And all I had in it was two sentences a day. One was about school, and one, one was about ice hockey. And my career started out being purely ice hockey and academics. And I pursued both of those along with lacrosse as well as my other sport uh, up to up to the late 90s where, okay, earlier on in the, in the late 80s, I left academia for the sport. And then uh, in the late 90s, I left uh, sport for the kind of work I do now, which is working with corporate boards, uh, both non-exec and executive boards. That's the so- start of it. How, how do you go from being one of the guys on the rink to being one of the guys behind the bench? Was there something <laughs> that, you know, they, you know, they say, oh, he's got, he's got good feet or he's got, you know, soft hands or something like that. And, and yeah. is there's, was there something that distinguished you that I, like, well, people said, yeah. you know, you should coach this. It, it, that's a good question. And it says like, why do people migrate to there? And often it's because they love the sport and they can't play anymore. Okay. And so what do they do to stay in the sport? They coach. Often. That's often the case. Uh, I had actually started coaching at the age of 14 when I was asked by some kids in my street to to help them with their with their game, actually, just individually. So I I have no clue why they asked me to do that. But I seemingly I was one who was approachable uh, to provide some support at 16. My first job was coaching ice hockey part time in a clinic for the borough of Etobicoke in Toronto. And I had one team or one 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 rink. And the next year I had uh, uh, no, my goodness gracious. You had two rinks. Yes. And then in each rink, I had two, four, uh, two teams. So that means four teams I was coaching at 17 and every one of them made the semifinals for the, uh, for the borough and, uh, they won. So I had to give an assistant coach, one of the teams so that I could go in the finals. And one of my two teams was going to, was going to win the championship. Now that was very, you know, low level beginner ice hockey, but I was in it r- way back then. And then I had a uh, interesting story. I had a, a young man who's now uh, uh, an associate with McKinsey, and he came in and did an internship with me way back when, when he was 21 years old, when I was living in Vienna, Austria, and he was really good. And I got him to to uh, to work with my son in math, okay, uh, to uh, to tutor him. And I listened in because my office was in the other room, and he was unbelievable at it. He was very good, had natural coaching skills, and I said, Navid. Uh, you have so, a job. With what's me a natural anytime. coach then? What, what, well, what is me, it not? Let me get let me get to that. Okay, one of sure. it is a part of what we're saying. So I said you had a job with me anytime you want, knowing that he'd never come back to work with a smaller organization. Yeah. Uh, but as but he did what he did is he asked me, well, what did what did you do when you were twenty one? Okay, and most of us we have a journey. We think it's quite natural to do what we did. Well, here's what I did when I was twenty one, Brian, at in the summertime for my summer job. I get hired as a head coach of a minor lacrosse associate, association up to and including the under 20 juniors. Uh, 
And my job was to coach all four, all 28 coaches, assistants and co and head coaches and all 14 teams. And that's, that's what I did along with playing what they would call semi-pro or senior hockey, which would pay for my education, basically not hockey, sorry, lacrosse, which would pay for my education. And that's what I did for a couple of summers. I coached that and I did it naturally. So like, ask me what, what back then, what do you do to become a coach? I, quite frankly, that's simply what I did. Okay. And all through my career, I went from university to, to my, to pro minor pro and whatnot in the U S in hockey. I didn't coach it uh, during that time. It was, I was, I was in too many cities, but as soon as I got a contract over in Europe, a part of what I did was coach the juniors. I just naturally migrated to that. So I, can't tell you what was driving me other than that's simply something I did. I was always there looking to give guidance, support, direction, uh, teaching, instruction. So is it natural? Does the natural coach, do you give them hell and, and then build them back up or, 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 you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's, there's sort of these famous coaches. Uh, I just read a book. Um, uh, it's actually a sports guy, Bill Campbell, trillion dollar coach, trillion dollar coach. Yeah. Great book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at the end of it, I wasn't really quite sure. I mean, everybody loved him. I wasn't yeah. really sure what he did. So, you know, I was, I'm, as I do coaching and I, I still don't, people think I'm okay, I guess, but, um, yeah. but what so is I, it? Okay. So I'll, I'll just tell you what I tell all the coaches I've done. I have done coaching certification programs for every country that I've lived in. I've lived in seven. Okay. Sorry. I have not done it for Poland six. Okay. And I started out in Canada at the very first uh, outset, the people who founded the certification programs were, previously uh, coaches of mine. And then I started working with them. So at 26 years old, I was delivering coaching certification programs. The first thing I would say to the people in the room, I said, if we have a thousand coaches here, there's a thousand different ways of coaching. Okay. You need to find your way. Uh, there's obviously some competencies and things that you need to be relatively good on, but quite frankly, the best coaches are not the ones with the highest certifications. The best coaches are the ones who do it intuitively. OK, they know how to bring the best out of people. They know how to get people to do what they know they got to do to succeed, but don't really want to do it. Know that they have to do it. And coaches find a way to get the people to do that kind of thing. OK, that's from the psychological perspective. From the other perspectives, I mean, you know, knowing knowing in, in particular sports sciences or, or business science, you might say, too, that's important. But it, it isn't what gets you in, as you would say, you wouldn't wouldn't get you the cup. Okay. So, so would you, would you say that you're kind of an uplifting, I mean, I'm watching whether it's football or, or yeah. whatever sport, usually a coach, you sort of envision it in your head is the guy's waving his hands and yelling and screaming like what, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, he get knighted because he won, you know, Manchester yeah. United. And as soon as Sir Alex left, left, uh, struggled. They struggled. Yep, exactly. So there's you, definitely uh, legacy or in fact, let's talk about a Ferguson example. Uh, a lot of what a coach does needs to impact the organization's culture at a systemic level. OK, which means we are integrating the way we want to be as competitors. OK, as people. And it needs to become the very fabric of the organization. 
All right. So, and the coach actually, and if you listen to these coaches when they go in, some of the first time, a lot of them say, well, we got to change the culture of the organization because it's not the kind of culture that's going to produce the type of winning seasons we'd like us, we'd like you to have, or you'd like to have what you brought me in for. And so what does that mean? Well, quite frankly, it means you've got to have a, and this is a, the orientation I've had for years, uh, getting clearer on it now as more and more research is being done on it. But systems thinking is critical. And systemic coaching is critical as well, meaning uh, how does the, the book go? It, it, it didn't start with you is now a famous book. OK, it didn't begin with you. Uh, if you go in and you take a first place coach, you take a Scotty Bowman, you give him like oh, example, you give him Buffalo Sabres. Okay, he's not going to win the cup until he's able to change that culture. That's going to take three to 10 years. All right. And it's the same thing, for example, with a CEO. If a CEO goes in and he's going to be measured on short-term uh, quick wins, there's a high probability if they haven't had many quick wins or there's not low-hanging fruit that he's going to get eaten up by the old culture, the old systems and processes, and the old people before he gets the chance to take a deep breath and set, set sail. So that's a lot of what one needs to be aware of. What I would say, especially in the sport environment, most of my coaching work was done before the season began. In the training camp, in the talks, one-on-one, -on -one, in the subgroup leadership groups, and, and in the onboarding of new players, all of that was done to set up the relationship building, to set up the appropriate expectations, okay, and to get them coming in and understand how we work together before the first in, – in ice hockey, before the, before the first puck is dropped. That includes managing or coaching up. And one reason I left ice hockey, quite frankly – is because the most difficult job of the coach, including the national team, when I coached the world championships and the Olympics, uh, was working with or coaching the people who were holding the highest of expectations, who were your bosses, the owners or the uh, functionaries that you, you're responsible for. Okay, They were the ones who were the toughest ones to, to get on board. So I walk into a, the dressing room and I throw my, my bag down in front of a locker and, and Ken comes over and he says, Brian, so what's the, what's the first thing you're starting to say to, to get my head in the right place? Well, that's a good question. I, I, uh, that example, I, the first thing I would do, I wouldn't say, Brian, I'd turn around and introduce you to the whole team if you're just coming in. Okay. So being introduced and onboarded appropriately, uh, I, it takes you, you need to take steps to do it right. And you need to have the person with a support system in there already. So you wouldn't come in and just sit anywhere. In any case, I would have already had it selected a place for you to sit. And quite frankly, it's what I do when I work with boards as well. Well, I, I was said, just going to do that segue because I, you know, it strikes me when you said that, you know, for a, to change a culture takes two, three years uh, using the Buffalo hockey team as an example. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of CEOs that get parachuted in uh, because, oh, you know, such and such organization or it's an executive director for a not-for-profit. Oh, we need, we need, an, we need a new uh, sheriff in town. We'll, we'll fire the old guy. We'll get somebody else in and, and it'll turn this around in three months. It sounds to me that you're, you're not a big fan of I'm putting words in your mouth of this idea that, uh, that, you know, we're going to find a new savior that's going to turn things around in three months. Exactly. You can, you can have, if there's something that's, that's, this, this bottlenecked, 
Okay, if if he can somewhere release a valve of pent up steam, then with that release of energy, you can either have the team go fully downhill because now they've won against the authority, okay, or fully open up and self-express and move forward quickly. In both cases, it's a short-term solution. So if you're looking for a short-term solution, and that's why you'll see coaching changes often in many sports right prior to the need to perform, okay? Hopefully they've said, well, something's happening here where the players are not able to perform anymore, and, and we've got to find a release valve. And unfortunately, in many cases, uh, it's the only, the only thing they can do is change the coach, Okay. Uh, change the voice in the dressing room. Is that the answer? Well, typically it's maybe it's typically it's part of the answer. You'll see the, the majority of the coaching changes don't produce the results that they're looking for, uh, especially in the long run. Once you're finished that short term replacement and you still got a contract, then you get into the real nitty gritty. Of, of what you've got to do. So, and even with the onboarding of a, I mean, you, you, you've done it and you've talked to it in your book, but the first 90 to a hundred days of becoming a chair of an organization of a board, the first 90 days, one of the first things you want to be able to do is understand what are the quick wins that they need to have in order to establish trust, team trust. And I, when I go into an organization, that's the first thing I look for. What's the level of trust for me as coach, for the manager, for the leads, the leaders on the, the team, and for the team, for the fans, so on and so forth. There's various levels of trust that you need to analyze and find out how strong it is and how support, how positive or negative it is. Because trust isn't just positive, trust is also negative. Like if you trust a coach to be a piece of you know what, then you're <laughs> probably gonna <laughs> you're probably gonna have the next coach. I mean, I'll never forget Bobby Hall, a great, great hockey player back in his day, uh, as far as he was concerned. A coach was he who opened the door for him to, for Bobby Hall to go in and out of the bench. That's it. Well, okay, you can give him Scotty Bowman. It's not going to help. In fact, it's probably going to cause a Mike Keenan Brett Hall situation, if you know that. Uh, I don't remember that, but <laughs> so I mean, this, I don't know if did you watch Ted Lasso? Yes. Yes. So, so if somebody threw you into, uh, you know, the soccer pitch, uh, would, would you be able to? Would you be able to be Ted? That's a that's a good question. Is he, I mean, so 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 Ted is full of positivity, and of course, switching. I mean, hey, I I did it. I jumped in in my late teens. I jumped into another sport, and ended up winning a national championship in my second year. Now I was not. I was the uh, the the crazy guy. I was the if you remember a guy by the name of Eddie Shack, punch him like you. Yeah, you got it. I was that for that team. I was a guy. I was the team spirit guy. I was the energy driver. And if you wanted to wake the team up, you'd get me on the floor and get me rolling. Right. The team. The coach knew who actually was Bob Polfer's brother. The coach knew how to use me. Uh, but uh, now where was I going then? Oh, so I had switched teams. Uh, it's not teams. I had switched sports. sports like yeah. Ted Lasso did. And, uh, and that is not easy to do. And although I was a very good hockey player at the time, uh, doing well and making all-star teams and captaining teams and blah, blah, blah in university at, in lacrosse, I was third, fourth line because I didn't know the sport at all. And I was going like crazy just because the only thing I could give was my full energy and my full intensity. So, uh, so my answer to a Ted Lasso really being that good from a psychological perspective. Yeah, I have, Oh, here's a good story for you. Uh, 
I so I was fairly well known in Austria. That's where I coached the national team. And as I switched into the uh, the business coaching, uh, the Austri- one of the top Austrian coaches gave me a phone call. He had successfully snatched a defeat out of the jaws of victory three years in a row, getting into the finals with a very well trained and coached uh, ba- basketball team, and always always lost. And he said, "Ken, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I got I'm recruiting well, putting my team together well, so on and so forth. Get to the finals and always blow it." So I took a look at it. And I said, okay, good. We can, we can do something. And so I started working with him. Then he said, you need to work with my whole team. So I started working with the whole team. They won four championships in a row. Okay. So I was able to adapt from a psychological perspective, social psychological perspective, which is a doctor background uh, for the coach, but he was unbelievably good at reading the game. Okay. His issue, his issue was control, which was not Ted Lasso's issue. Uh, okay. Uh, and, and what I had to help him do is help him get out of the way of his, he was getting in the way of, in the way of his own success. So I had to help him get out of the way of his own success and allow for his players to take more charge, take more control. He had some outstanding players, but they weren't able to express themselves. And a part and parcel of what I had to do is help him do that. And then help give the players some, some belief in themselves that they could do that. So and I got a bundle of stories for that, but there's an example of switching sports like Ted Lasso did. But I was not the guy who's making the the actual key decisions in the business. And it's the same thing I've done for the last twenty odd years over, gee, over seventy different countries now, working with organizations where I'm not going to be making the business decisions. That's not my job. My job is to set you up for you and your team to make the best of the situation and come up with the right strategies and business decisions. So, you know, with all that experience and, and geographically and over time, is there is there sort of a, a top, you know, three, four things that you go, this is sort of across whatever the world or whatever industry, whatever this, these are the weaknesses that coaching can, can address. Uh, is it, it sounds to me like, you know, is it confidence and how do you build confidence in people? It's, it's not technical, right? It's not a Betty Crocker here, preheat oven to three, whatever temp- temperature. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's not that. And yet some of it is that one of the things I've done, uh, I think I told uh, what well, we talked about the, uh, the project I did in India with an international uh, pharmaceutical company. And we changed that. We changed the culture from a command and control culture to a, a collaborative leadership culture four and a half years. Uh, but we managed it. And, uh, so there we looked at the, at the systematization of their leadership. And we worked at that level, how each leader was meant to lead. And some of the examples I gave were when you recruit, and I talked to the HR people as well, in particular, because they would be doing most of the recruiting. But I'd also talk to the other executives because they, they would know. I would say, like, you know how many people you're taking from this specific you're poaching from this specific organization. Do you know why you're doing that? Do you know why you love a Procter & Gamble graduate, shall we say? Do you know why McKinsey guys are often brought in uh, to organizations, okay? What is it about them? It's the leadership culture that they have in those organizations that the younger generations have learned as they go through the organization that they bring with them, 
okay, and to the organization that's lacking that. So that's a big part of what I what I see when I go across. It, it, they'll, they, there's some organizations that have systematized, without necessarily realizing that's what they've done, but they've systematized their leadership so that the leaders effectively lead uh, in very similar ways, okay? That goes from the uh, the way they align their people, the way they work their meetings, the way they standardize and routinize their meetings, the way they do their information flow, starting with uh, what I always call uh, inform, form, norm, and perform. So how do they pass information along, how they get, uh, uh, f- how they form decisions, how they uh, conform. I missed the other one, conform, which is mean, means how they give standardized reports so that you get the pulse of the meeting as fast as you, sorry, the pulse of the business as fast as you can get. Okay, so that uh, you don't waste a lot of time in, in just conform meetings and you realize this is a conform meeting, give us an update. And if you got any, what I call red flags, then you, you set up red flag meetings, and that's a part of the cultural imperatives that I try to bring in is people understand, okay, we do a lot of conform meetings to stay in touch, and if we have a red flag, we've got to, A, have an action plan, and B, we've got to set up a meeting to make sure that action plan is, is well heard and understood and accepted by the people uh, that, that, that need to know, things like that. So it's, it's, it's systematizing their, their culture and then looking at how to change the systemic patterns in the organization that is that are stopping you from moving forward, either moving forward in terms of progress or moving forward in terms of transition. Okay, transformation or transition. Transition in meaning you're ending one chapter and you're moving on to another, or transformation meaning you're moving, you're transforming the whole organization from a from a, a caterpillar to a butterfly, for example. And uh, it was something that a lot of organizations had to do through COVID. And that takes a different coaching approach. But the idea there is that uh, you're looking at the whole organization's systems and the systemic patterns that are happening inside there, the organization that the people don't quite see because effectively they're invisible. Why do I always have these people complaining to me? One one fellow would say, why do they never take the whole you know, run with the ball, as you would say in, in, in football, American football, Canadian football. Okay, well, it's because the leader they had for the past 10 years was always take, usurping the responsibility from them and doing it themselves, not because he was a controller, but because he wanted to make sure it was done well and done right. And now you come in and you're trying to build them up to do it, but they've had 20 years of, of being trained the other way from the last leader or two leaders. Yeah, it's that old saying, right? To, to you know, give a man a fish versus teach a man to fish. That's it. So, so there's things like that, and even when you have, I've done, I've done uh, performance management, shall we call it, uh, issues where an executive has gotten himself in trouble. In fact, I just had a conversation this morning about that very topic, and a lot of the reason that they, this one fellow, for example, he was in trouble because he did not meet. Uh, how do I say that? Sorry. He was not a cultural fit. Okay. In his own right, he was in the right business situation, a very good leader. Okay. In terms of leader of people, congenial, convivial, new with stuff on top of things, but he didn't fit the culture that they had. Okay. Which, which was a little bit more formal, a little bit more uh, uh, hierarchically oriented, and so on and so forth. And and despite the work that we we did, the decision was for him to move on, okay, and find a cultural fit that 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 suits the way he likes to work. 
that's one of the most important things I do, especially when I'm working with people, for example, on boards who want to get onto the boards is to get them to understand the culture of the board, the culture of the organization. Okay. And the, 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 the systemic patterns that meaning what, are, what's behind each person, how aligned are they? Okay. And why are they there? Okay. And so, so them to understand what the dynamics are and, and how easy it will be to go in and be um, uh, somebody who can work on behalf of the organization to for the betterment of the of the company and the business, or is it working for the betterment of the organization's key stakeholders for the betterment of the owners? Okay, sometimes despite the the business. Yeah, actually, the you know uh, last last fall I was attending uh, actually a session that uh, Mary Cameron and Darren uh, were running on just for chairs. And, and we got into this exercise on, you know, for boards, the skills, the classic skills matrix. Do we have somebody that fits their accounting or it or legal or whatnot? And, and then you end up with this huge grid of a bazillion sort of different yeah. things and ticking boxes and adding up and some, and whatnot and see where, where you don't have enough ticks. Their point of view was that, um, that, that, that it's sort of this blizzard of statistics that doesn't really tell you something. And, and the alternate was, is to, is to actually, um, articulate and think about the mindset of the people as opposed yeah. to what their technical skill is. It's the yeah. mindset. So when you're talking about somebody moving on, whether it was their decision or somebody said you should move on. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. You know, you're referencing <laughs> India, Austria, whatnot. Is, do you find, cause you worked in, in lots of countries, is, is there sort of a, an American mindset or a German mindset. So I'm giving you a layup there. There's a sports analogy for you. You're setting the table and you want me to serve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's call this cultural relativity. Okay. There's a, there's a good book that came out and first time through was I think 1972 called organizational culture. Really interesting book. Second editions have come out and I've lost track, but there may be third editions by now as well. But what they did is they mapped out largely through the biggest companies in the world, starting with IBM. They mapped out the, the various values of the company and how they were represented across the world. Okay. And it's, it fits very well. So going from East to West, you see difference, differentiation between collectivity and individualization. Okay. For example, uh, that's one big one. There's a whole bunch of them. I, I'd have to look it up again. I've got it somewhere, but uh, there's about, if I remember correctly, there's about seven different ones and you can see going from East to West and North to South, the differentiation uh, within the organizations. And you need, one needs to be aware of that when, and even within some a place like Europe, you need to take a look at, for example, does, that, does that become an exercise in managing potential conflict or is there an opportunity for synergy there? Because, you know, what somebody thinks linear and somebody thinks nonlinear and you go like, we need, yep. we need, you know, the old Yogi bear, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. This is, this is good. We need both yeah. of them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and exactly right. So you've got, if you can do that, but you've got to have an understanding that people are going to be representing the way they think based on their culture. 
Okay. Are there going to be like one of the biggest examples would be decision making and how decision how boards from from Holland, for example, make decisions versus boards from from uh, let's see what let's say New England are going to make decisions in general. Okay. Mm-hmm. You won't get you won't get a board in Holland that's going to make a decision without getting consensus from the whole board. They will not let anything out until they've heard every voice. And that they make then a group decision that they will all be able to stand by. Okay. Whereas, and I won't say New England, but I don't want to pick on just one country. But if you take a, 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 a country that has more individualization, less collectivity, less consensus decision making, such as the states, for example, you will get people who will stand out and say, look, I disagree with the decision. and I'm sorry. There's not going to be one voice when we leave this boardroom. I have to state this publicly because that's my stance. Okay, for example, so you get that now you get those kind of I've got an example of that right now. I'm working with a CEO who came in from the States into Holland, actually, and he, he's dealing with that right now. Some of us is is the organizational culture itself. Some of us, the national culture or regional culture he needs to be aware of and not get frustrated with, but work it in a way that can help the situation. So it's. Uh, it's like one time I was coaching uh, in Italy. This is ice hockey. I was getting very upset. The bus was late. We were going across Italy into Austria and down into Slovenia, and the bus was late. And uh, I was getting very upset. And finally, the manager came over and said, Ken, it's like this. We have a fair we're going to put on in the fall. Okay. And uh, fair. Yeah, okay. fair. Like, <laughs> they, in German, they would call it a messa. Okay. Yeah. A fair. Like a, a, what do you call it? A, uh, where they're showing their wares and people come in and take a look at them and you get contracts and you get sales out of it and so on and so forth. A trade show. They, yeah. a trade show. There you go. Thank you. A trade show. And uh, he said, so we sit down with a, two groups that were looking for them to put a bid in and to organize it. We sit down with a German group. Okay. This is the Italian speaking. And the German group says, oh, when do you want this? Okay. This is October 26th, 27th. Okay. We're in May. Okay. So, Good. So by June 1st, you'll have the outline. By June 22nd and 23rd, we'll have the materials ready to build the location. And they'll map the whole thing out. They'll have all the contracts in order. They'll get all the products in there. They'll get all the suppliers in there. It'll all be lined up very well. The whole thing will run extremely well. It'll be effective. It'll be efficient. And uh, and you'll have successful successful sales and contracts coming out of it. Okay, that's the Germans. And this is a fellow from what they call Sudtirol. They're a mix between Italian and German. That's the funny part of it. And then he says, then, Ken, we sat down with the Italians. They said, when is it? And this is May. They said, well, it's October 26th, 27th. They say, great, we'll do it. We'll see you there. <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything is messed up. Nothing's organized. Somehow or other things get put into place. It's a disaster in terms of the presentation. They have an absolute blast. There's a party every night. The sales are made. Okay, people are happy and off they go. Two different ways of getting to the same end, end result. Okay, some people are happy. Some people are unhappy. But culturally, there's, a, there's night and day even within countries that, uh, that border each other. I, I, when I do coaching, I, I look at them as bespoke. That each situation is totally different, but yeah. it, it sort of runs against. You know, you were saying that you took a certification in coaching. It, it, it is, yes. you know, I, there, there's sort of these these sort of uh, yin and yang. 
you know, the, the emotional intelligence part of people, people are people, they, they, they cry, they get angry. They, they're, yeah. they're just human beings at the same time. Well, oh, they're Italian human beings or they're German human beings. <laughs> yeah. and so, so how much, how much of it is, is hardwired when you're coaching it, it whether it's executive CEOs or, or a hockey team, how, how much of it is, are you sort of leaning on the, the hardwiring versus yeah. now this is just a, person and and they're just they, they're just like anybody yeah. else and anywhere else in the world so I, I I'll, I'll tell you my approach on that and it goes back to the some of the stories I was telling you uh, the first it's levels of analysis okay and the first level that I look at firstly and foremostly is the cultural aspect okay uh, what's the culture like that they're in globally what's the culture like that's within the organization what's the culture like that's within their business unit or team? depending on how big they are and whatnot. So I, I look at that and I see where there's conflictual potential or there's already conflict to see if there's anything that we've got to smooth out there between teams or between units or between companies or whatever that we have there. Then the next level that I look at is the systems and the uh, processes or procedures that they have in the organization that are not working for them, that are frustrating the people because the people can't do their work the way that they'd like to do it. Uh, because of the systems and the processes. And of course, you got a bundle of them. Then we look at the people. Okay. And that's counter to the reason I'm typically hired for, especially in a, in a performance issue. They'll say, Ken, we got a people problem. This guy's not performing. And I'm going, oh, really? Okay. Well, let's take a look at this person. And what kind of qualifications, what kind of track record have they got? Okay, where's the issue here? They has, you know, we will look at, I will take an initial look at the person, but then I'll also take a look at the fit within the culture between the person and his team, between the person and his peers, between the person and his bosses, okay, or superiors. And I'll also take a look at the, his team versus team. So this particular instance I have in my head right now was a marketing fellow who was a dynamite guy, but he's having major issues with the salespeople. Okay, and we had to take a look at that and we had to bring them together in order for him to see his way clear to enhance his performance. He was letting go of and it gets to this, too. He was letting go of his contract, wherein the goals were stated for him in such a way that he could not achieve it if he was going to support what sales wanted to do. And he was fighting that, obviously, because it wasn't just him, it was his whole team. So the, the lack of alignment at one level created a lack of performance at another level that they blamed on the person. Okay, and they couldn't change the contract apparently. So then he ended up, have, we, we helped them see their way clear to working together well enough to achieve the goals that the organization needed to achieve and then sit down and take a look at the contract as we came to the end of the contract. So, so one one of the big things in the world these days, and just reflecting on it, the last few days there was some news item that said, uh, you know, the baby boomers are finally retiring, and but it, it just generally speaking, demographics. When you look at a lot of European countries, you look at uh, parts of Asia, like Japan, then you know the demographics are aging population, but also fewer people, and but the organizations still have to function. Do you think that? what leadership is and motivation is going to change. You know, when I was growing up, uh, there was lots of unemployment. That's kind of 
gone the way of the dodo burden with, you know, shortages of people. How, how do, how, you know, given your experience and, and the geographies you dealt with, do you, do you think coaching and, and what the facets are of being an effective leader are going to shift at all? I, I, quite frankly, absolutely. I think you're on to something. We, and it's the same, and you see it in sport too, actually. Okay. But what we do uh, as coaches, the, the skill set or the competencies that we need to have effectively are high level communication, communication skills. Okay. High level interpersonal skills. And they can also be high level intrapersonal skills. We you need to separate those out. Uh, our leader, the people who assume leadership roles, because quite frankly, I consider leadership to be a system, not to be an individual. Okay. You can take a really strong minded person, a really well-suited person, shall we say, put them in the wrong leadership situation, give them the wrong leadership systems. He's not going to be able to lead. Okay. And what you will end up seeing, and that's a part of what we're, we're looking at going forward is that the leadership as it's going to be, will emerge from innovative collaborative efforts of, of, the, of, or, of, of uh, industries, of businesses, industries, and sectors that have been, uh, what's the word, disrupted. And one of the things what we need to do is set up the opportunity for the young leaders to come through. They will be different already. I mean, I just was on a uh, I'd have to look at it. It was a digital uh, and, and technology WhatsApp group for YPO. The language that they speak there, English, of course, but their own language is so, so very different than if you go into a family business WhatsApp group. It's unbelievably different. Leadership needs to emerge out of that. And so the question that you're you're asking is, do we need to, what kind of, I, I would say, if I'm getting it right, what kind of leaders do we have? What kind of competencies, skill set do we have now going forward? Well, my first answer is, well, let that emerge, number one. Number two, because of the fact that we have fewer employees, we need to work with them differently because of the fact we have fewer employees who have a different psychological preparation than what we had with the baby boomers, for example, we also need to understand where they're coming from and coach them accordingly or lead them through coaching accordingly. I'm actually of the opinion that, that uh, coaching as a leader is a very significant competency for a leader to have. Yeah, I, I, I don't really see the difference between coaching per se, and what we call managing a department is yeah. this, this, what you're doing is aligning and clearing and making sure there's a consistency to your point. I hadn't really thought of it that the processes of themselves yeah. are fr can frustrate a, a, a good group of people and, and create sort of negative counterproductive teamwork. But uh, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, I use a, a model typically, and I did that with uh as a sport coach, and I, I used to teach that in the, uh, in the coaching certification programs that I did, and it's very straightforward. It's called team. Okay, so the first thing I mentioned to you is trust. Uh, the second one is, uh, so once you understand where the trust is, you know if you're coming into a situation where they trust the coach, the person in the role of the coach, or not. 
or whether they trust the manager who's hiring, firing the coaches or not, or if they trust each other, or if they trust the defense and their forwards, or if they trust their goal, all that kind of thing. So trust is a really important piece. And if I got to work on that, that's where I stop. I got to work on trust before I can work on anything else. Absolutely. Period. Yeah. The, the next thing I look at, I misspell the word because I, the next thing I do is I go, I go to alignment and a lot. What does alignment mean for a sport coach? Alignment means here's how I want, this team to, to function. If I'm going to be able to coach you guys, this is what I need from you. And I give them the very basic uh, etiquette of being a team together, including, for example, in ice hockey, how you work the bench, where you come in, where you sit, and how you move along the bench in order to be up and ready to go, given us the way we work the team, things such as that. Okay. Uh, so I get alignment and then how you play with each other. There's, there's certain rules of behavior rules that they need to agree to uh, in order to get the functional and relational alignment I'm looking for. Then I get to the E, which is engagement levels. And if I don't have the trust level up higher, if I don't have the alignment up, I can forget trying to get engagement because engagement will be bottlenecked. It'll be disconnected. Uh, it'll be broken down if I don't have trust and engagement. Uh, sorry, trust and alignment. alignment. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. I get those three. Then I get the last one, which is M, stands for mobilization. Then I can get them to go. Then I can mobilize them. So that's a, that's something, that I've, a little model that I've always used to help uh, people in leadership situations to assess that. Guys, it's not just about you coming in and, you know, breaking a hockey stick in front of the team, which I've done. <laughs> Kicking a garbage can in front of the team, which I've done. Uh, okay, if you do do that, it needs to be what the team needs. If it's what you need personally as a coach, then you're off. You're off target. If it's what the team needs, they need that energy. They need that that uh, that venting. Then you do it. If you, and if they don't need that venting from you, then you don't do it. So, well, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of say some bad joke like there and you point being there's no i in team me too right so yeah and you get the yeah. uh the the kobe so, so before i dump the gatorade on your head <laughs> the ice gatorade that is yeah. uh this is the final question what was your most you know have you done coaching around the world and and sports teams business teams uh not for profits olympics but not What's your, what was your favorite, what's your, if you could do one of them sort of over again, but what would, what's, what's the best coaching moment? Uh, uh, my best coaching moments are when people succeed, I coach so that the people that I'm coaching have breakthrough success. And uh, that's where I get the, and what I have, I guess I can probably go back to the uh, first uh, world championship that we won. Um, uh, my, my direct superior, my boss, after we were at, we were at home in the home country, uh, and we had just won it and they were celebrating and I'd wandered off back into my office, popped open, put a beer, put my legs on top of my desk and just sat back in complete and utter peace. And, and sipped on my beer. And my coach came in and said, Ken, what are you doing? Everybody, they want you out there. They're all celebrating. And I, I said to us, I, I said, Dieter, you know, I'm just in a happy place right now. It's a quiet moment where I have a lot of inner satisfaction that what we did is something that's likely not, it's the first time that this country has ever done it. And it's, it's, it's the highest pinnacle I've reached as a hockey coach. And 
uh, that's there's so much inner drive in there that is con- that has been satisfied and rewarded that I just feel so peaceful. I don't need any of that celebration whatsoever. This beer, my feet up, relaxation. That's what I wanted, and I'll never forget that moment uh, where I had it because I didn't need anything else. But I was just calm. It's like a calm sea out there, and uh, you could see for miles, but you were just bobbling ever so lightly in a very calm in very calm waters after having survived some major storms. Well, Ken, uh, enjoyable as always having a conversation. And so thank you for uh, joining me, me on, uh, on board and, uh, and sharing some of your uh, lessons uh, from around the world and over time and different aspects of organizational behavior. So I appreciate your time and, and the, the learnings, always learning something when I talk with you. So, Appreciate that. Uh, thank you very much. Um, we need to re- do a reverse role here because I've got tons of questions for you. I'd love to. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to ask. <laughs> well, you never know. Like Ted Lasso came back for another season. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Take care. Unplugged, unscripted board leadership. This is on board.